Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Much has been made of hair care mogul C.J. Walker, but before the Walker Empire, there was another, whose innovation, drive, and concern for her fellow humans has been overshadowed by her more flamboyant protege. Today, we're going to tell you both of their stories. The end. Let's talk about Annie Turnbow Malone. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1905, environmental organization the Audubon Society was founded. Women's Christian Temperance League founder, Frances Willard, became the first woman honored at the U.S. Capitol's National Statuary Hall. Variety Magazine was first published, and Las Vegas was founded. Christian Dior and Greta Garbo were both born. Jules Verne and YMCA founder George Williams died. And in 1905, the future Annie Malone trademarked the name Poro for her already well-established hair care and cosmetics business. Annie Minerva Turnbow was born on August 9th, either in 1869, like is carved into her tombstone, or 1877, on a farm just outside of Metropolis, Illinois. The tenth of the eleven children of Robert and Isabella Cook Turnbow. Before she was born, both of her parents were enslaved people in the border state of Kentucky. We talked about Kentucky during the Mary Todd Lincoln episodes. Kentucky, which never seceded from the Union, that surprises people, and stayed a slave state, even though more people supported the Union. It's a study in contradictions. <laughs> uh, and critically, was not subject to the Emancipation Proclamation. The more you know. <laughs> so at some point, Papa went to fight in the Union Army. His regiment looks like it was called the 1st Regiment Kentucky Heavy Artillery of African Descent. That is very specific. And it was later changed to the 8th United States Colored Heavy Artillery. And although he had signed up and he did all the work of being a soldier, he wasn't officially considered a member of the Union Army, even though he was doing everything, including getting injured in a scouting mission. We know that Robert lived on the plantation of a man named John Turnbow, T-U-R-N-B-O-W. When he enlisted in the Army or registered for the Army, the name was changed to Drop the W. So we know that. The details are pretty thin. Whatever the case, he did leave, and Mama Isabella seized the opportunity to flee Kentucky with her children. Two at the time, a little boy and a little girl, and she left from Paducah, which is kind of where that regiment was based, guarding Fort Anderson. She went from Paducah to Metropolis, Illinois, which is only eight miles on the river to freedom. I cannot believe how tantalizing that must have been, you know? To have it so close. Eight miles to freedom. Yeah. Now it's known for the 15-foot tall statue of Superman. They do have a celebration if it happens this year, if we get out of quarantine by June 11th. Metropolis yeah. has a Superman festival. I don't know what you do during Superman festival. Do you eat corn dogs and apple and pie? I don't know. Walk around with glasses on and take them off. Maybe there's like phone booths that you can walk into for your picture. I don't know. Someone will have to tell us. I thought this was telling, and it was a little throwaway remark in one of the articles that I was reading online. I think it was in a dissertation that I read that when they got to Metropolis, Mama and possibly the two children at some point started working for a family called the Cook family that had moved there from Kentucky. And I'm like, 
Mama's maiden name was Cook. Mm-hmm. This metropolis is where our Annie was born. And as a side note and a rabbit hole, one of her teachers in school here was fired for his civil rights activism and public speaking. His name was James McGee. This episode, more than a lot of others, has a lot of rabbit holes you can fall down, I Mm -hmm. thought. So if you're looking for something to do, for instance, (laughs) or maybe, you know, you're homeschooling your kids. When Annie was young, her parents both died within months of each other. Some of the kids were older so they could live on their own. But Annie and her sister went to live with another sister in Peoria, Illinois. Those older sisters are kind of valuable. The Peoria schools had been desegregated for about 15 years, so she went to an integrated school. Rare enough in this time, but as usual, everything else was firmly and utterly separate from drinking fountains to public facilities to who can shop at what store. So it's not a rosy environment. Complicating Annie's situation, she was very intelligent. She loved to read. She had very poor eyesight and she had some mysterious health ailment that kept her home from school quite a bit. And may, in fact, have contributed to her leaving school at least a year or maybe two ahead of time. She never graduated. That's all we know. Right. During that time, she developed an interest in hairstyling. Now, as a person with very long hair, I can tell you, little sisters will braid your hair. Yes, they will. <laughs> um, so it is a, a natural enough instinct, but this seemed to be more than that to her and more like a passion. Anybody that would sit down in front of her, she would style their hair. And while she was doing it, she was noticing a lot of things that were consistent with the hair of African-American women. It was often brittle. It was often thin. It was breaking. Women had complaints about their hair and she had her hands in it all the time. At the time, African-American hair fashion was Definitely focused on intensive straightening, usually combing through with this goop made out of dried potatoes, eggs, and lye. It was called congoline. Conking your hair caused a lot of pain. The lye caused burns on your scalp that you couldn't scratch as they healed or you'd burn the dickens out of yourself even worse next time. And you might get an infected scalp. And lye-treated hair was extraordinarily prone to breakage. So there's one way you could go or you could use goose grease or butter or other heavy oils to slick your hair down, which often smelled, as you can imagine, by day two or three and had their own impracticalities in the heat as they would run down your forehead. So there were some companies owned by white people that promised they would overcome this problem, but they had very offensive marketing. Plows hairdressings ads read like this, apply and all your kinky, snarly, ugly hair becomes soft and smooth. What? Ouch. Other marketing referred to, quote, your short, matted, unattractive hair. You know what? What do these white people even know about it anyway? There had to be a better way than either burning your face off or giving your money to these sorts of people to combat the problem. She also had developed an interest in chemistry combined with an aunt who was an herbalist who took Annie under her wing and took her out into the woods and showed her what things were good for moisturizing and what things were good for healing skin and just taught her a whole bunch of herbal remedies. So she experimented and ended up with a concoction of sulfur, of beeswax and petrolatum, which we might call Vaseline. 
Uh, which I think is a brand name. I'm so sorry. Sometimes things just become <laughs> the thing you refer to, Kleenex. You know what? And I've never heard that word pronounced. I don't know if it's petrolatum, possibly. Why don't we say petrolatum, petrolatum, Vaseline? <laughs> yeah. And some herbs because the ant was all about having learned from passing down of knowledge from previous generations. I think sometimes that knowledge is woefully undervalued. Mm -hmm. I think what Annie did that was breakthrough was that she realized that the scalp was the source of all these hair problems and that if you could heal the scalp, you could heal the hair. Well, if you prevent damage and you mm -hmm. prevent all those scabs from the lie, your hair grows. I mean, your, mm -hmm. your hair is allowed to grow naturally as it was going to anyway, right. you know, but you're preventing it with what you're doing to it. Her concoction was called the Wonderful Hair Grower. Annie decided that the best course of action for her business that she really wanted to pursue was to get out of Peoria. So she moved to another town called Lovejoy. So Lovejoy, Illinois, which is now called Brooklyn, is only a couple of miles away from East St. Louis. And it is the oldest town that was incorporated by African-Americans in the United States. Enslaved people who fled across the mighty Mississippi, which is terrifying if you've ever gone across it, you know, right at St. Louis. How I don't even know how I would cross it with a floaty and a motor. It's actually kind of scary to think about it. And there were not the bridges there are today. So they fled across the Mississippi to freedom and started this town. So there was a good market of African-American families here. She rented a room in a house with a very supportive family who let her set up her entire operation, her cooking of her product, her canning of her product, and her selling of her product. She took a map of the town and divided it into quadrants so that she could systematically cover the town, knocking door to door. She'd traveled by buggy so she could take a woman and sample the products on her hair, show the woman and her friends how it worked, and then sell the product door to door. And it was very successful in Lovejoy, but she realized she needed an even bigger market. So she moved from the fringes of the city into St. Louis itself. Doesn't it seem like that all roads lead to St. Louis, <laughs> to a salon slash, mm, I wouldn't call it a retail emporium, at least not yet. But you know how when you're in a salon and they have that shelf of things behind the counter that they use and you can buy right on Market Street in the middle of, quote, the Ville, which was the fanciest African-American neighborhood in the whole city. It was the center of Black culture. Once she moved to St. Louis, she did marry Nelson Pope and he immediately got involved in her business. Was that a good thing? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Pope, uh, Mr. Annie, let's call him, reportedly got too bossy and demanding with regard to his wife's new business. Or more likely, maybe this was just the straw that broke the camel's back on a relationship that was already rocky. But it is via condios for old Mr. Pope. The two of them were divorced not very long after they were married. Annie's sister, Laura, Laura Roberts, joined her in this business. She was married. They moved down to St. Louis and the business was now called Roberts and Pope. And the two began to change the hair of the African-American women of St. Louis, one sample at a time. Shortly after Annie's move to St. Louis was something really big happening in the city, the 1904 World's Fair. We've talked about this before. It's the Meet Me in St. Louis Louis. <laughs> You're not going to sing it? <laughs> I did sing it and then I got irritated. <laughs> So no, no longer. Um, so 
here's the problem, the challenge with the St. Louis World's Fair. Sounds fun. And if you're Judy Garland and family, oh, it's so exciting. And you know what? It is exciting. But the problem is, if you are a person of color, oh, you can go. They'll let you buy a ticket. They'll get you in the door. And officially, according to the committee and the head office, this is a integrated event. But individual vendors were left to their own devices whether or not they were going to serve their patrons of color. And so when you went there, you couldn't really get food. You couldn't really get water. Not allowed to drink out of the drinking fountains if a lot of people saw you. Wouldn't sell them souvenirs. Annie had a stand, though, selling her wares, selling her products here. And it was sort of a money spinner for her. But this fair had a little taint. The National Association of Colored Women were supposed to have a meeting at the fairgrounds, and they were so disturbed by how women of color, well, all people of color were treated, that they actually moved their whole operation off the site of the fairgrounds and found other accommodations for their first meeting. A, quote, Negro Day was abandoned due to the simmering racism at that fair. Seems like, of the whole operation, Annie was the only one that came out a little bit ahead. She did. She had met a number of people at the fair that she was able to network with. Her products suddenly began to be in high demand. It was time for Annie and Laura to kind of amp up their business. They changed the name of their business to Poro. There's some discussion about where this actually comes from. The official word is that it's a West African word that means physical and spiritual growth. However, there is a person who was around that time who did say that the word comes from combining the first two letters of Roberts and Pope. Which makes more sense to me. Both of those things could be true. They say the name Poro, Pope and Roberts, and then they realize, oh, ho, somebody tells them, you know, that means blah, blah, blah in this West African language. And I don't know why you wouldn't seize on that. Yeah, no kidding. So the exposure from the World's Fair was electric and business expanded exponentially. In addition to her classic door-to-door sales, Annie and her sister used the Avon or Fuller Brush models and added what they called agents, people that they trained to present the product that could be their representatives out in the field. Also, Laura and Annie went out and gave demonstrations in women's clubs and churches. They held press conferences. They gave speeches. Annie began to have more and more sales agents who in turn recruited others in cities across America. Now, as we've talked about in the Madam C.J. Walker episode, which we will air in its entirety after this one, former client, current employee Sarah McWilliams or Sarah Davis moved out to Denver as a Poro agent in 1905. And soon she was marketing her own, quote, wonderful hair grower product under the Madam C.J. Walker brand. So Annie Malone was justifiably angry. Uh, Someone you've brought in betrays you in this way. It's pretty big, actually. (laughs) Walker, I mean, we'll talk about it in the next episode, did say that her formula came to her in a dream. And by the assistance of a white man she was housekeeping for who happened to be a pharmacist. So there's that story. But Annie Malone actually ran ads in Colorado papers, except no imitations for Poro's wonderful hair grower. Obviously, it didn't work because both of their companies grew exponentially from here. We shall see how Madam C.J. Walker's life goes on and career. So we can wave her goodbye at this point because we're going (laughs) to learn all about her. There might be a finger from Annie. 
<laughs> she might wave with one finger. There was a couple lawsuits too, but nothing. She didn't have anything to stand on. She hadn't patented her product. There was copycats popping up everywhere. For defense purposes at this time, Annie did trademark the Poro name. So she owns that at least. She is not patenting the product, however. Even though it says patent on the ads. So I don't know if that's patent pending or just bluster. Didn't we talk about this in the Lydia Pinkham episode about the questionable marketing tactics, possibly illegal in our current age? Not so much back then because no one was paying attention. Oh, you mean about claiming it had a patent when it Right, didn't... right. Well, it was a lot harder to check mm-hmm. on that kind of thing. Well, Annie Malone's empire went from strength to strength despite that very powerful competitor out west. And her network of agents transformed the economic realities of thousands of African-American families. The agents could make 10 times with Poro what they might make as a domestic servant. A lot of times, the income the woman of the household was bringing in allowed the children to go to school. Yeah, think about that. So you've transformed two generations and lifted as you yourself climbed. You know what? I love that slogan, and I love that we've already talked about who created it, and we use it so often. As a motto for our own contemporary lives, I think it's awesome, too. Standing the test of time that lifting as we climb. As you reach a higher level, reach your hand back down and help someone else Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. I cannot argue with that. So her product line had a lot, a lot of goodwill from the public. And before she was 33, our friend Annie Malone was a millionaire. Yes. Well, she married again, this time to a childhood friend from way back in the days of Peoria. His name was Aaron E. Malone. She married him when she was 37, and he was also the son of former slaves. Very common during this time period to have that be your situation. He had graduated from college and had become a teacher and then a public speaker and the principal of Quincy, Illinois' quote, colored school. He started a literary society in that school. He pioneered school lunches at that school and increased sewing classes and other kinds of practical help for his students as they graduated. What he was doing in St. Louis was selling Bibles, (laughs) which I mean, on one hand, it's like, is that a step down? But on the other hand, he's getting into people's homes and he's able to talk with them, you know, one on one to know the community. So when I think of Bible salesmen, though, here's an obscure reference. Has anyone seen the movie with Tatum O'Neill called Paper Moon? Oh, I love that movie. Yes. Where their whole shtick is selling Bibles to widows (laughs) that their husbands had ordered and they were raking it in. So. Unfortunately, I got a little bit of a bad impression of him just from that because that's the only reference I have to traveling Bible salesmen. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I'm Christian and I have the same <laughs> image of them, but I'm trying to put myself back in, you know, 1914. <laughs> well, there were no borders or Amazon. That's true. You had to get them from somewhere. Uh huh. And you could buy them from Professor Malone. That's what he had people call him. More legitimate than most of the snake oil salesmen who called themselves professor because, like I said, college degree and had run an entire upper, you know, educational institution. So I'm not going to begrudge him his title. No. The two had set off on a honeymoon towards the West Coast, but it wasn't really entirely honeymoon. It was a business trip. It was to set up more Poro clubs on the West Coast. And when they came back to St. Louis, they packed themselves up in a brand new Packard and went east to continue to establish these Poro clubs. 
That would be the only place you could buy Poro products. They were not sold in stores. You could get your education and become a Poro agent there. So they were like hubs of Poro. Annie had begun to train her agents in what she called Poro College. She was running this out of her home. She loved to live where her business was. In this case, it was a very large mansion, but even then it was getting so big, she needed a bigger space. So Annie went really big. She bought up some land in the Ville. She's very loyal to the area and built a massive five-story building that would not only house her college to train her cosmetologists, but from the very early days of her business, Annie believed in giving back to the community. That was very important to her. It was one of the things she taught all of her students. So her business, her building, was going to also be a community hub. So yes, it had her business office. It had training facilities, a warehouse, factory, beauty shops, classrooms for the students, labs for the product engineers, what you would expect to be in a corporate facility. But there was an ER. There was an auditorium. Conference rooms you could book, a gymnasium a bakery, an ice cream parlor, a series of dining halls, and a floor of guest rooms in an era where it could be very dicey for people of color to be served in a restaurant or find a room in a hotel. And I love that as something came up that she felt like would be a good addition to her building, like all those things didn't happen right from the get-go, but they slowly built on. She's like, yeah, let's do an ice cream parlor. And she added that, you know, let's perform plays at this auditorium, Shakespeare plays. Bring in performers, not just for Poro business, but for community entertainment. You know what this reminds me of kind of in a weird way? And I hadn't thought about it until this moment. You know how Jane Adams and her settlement house kind of started out like, okay, there's the practical things. There's food and et cetera. But then we can also bring the community together in this settlement house by offering classes, by offering reading clubs and this kind of thing. I think it's Lady person should probably run the world, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think it's all part of that same instinct. Like if we know each other and help each other, we can make a better society. And I think that's literally what she was doing mm-hmm. with her block long, giant five story building in an area of St. Louis who could all come together in this one place um, when they couldn't in the outside world. And I just think that was really admirable of her. I agree. So up in those labs, I'm not sure which floor they were on. If it were me, they'd be in the basement with like a giant ventilator, but I don't 100% (laughs) know where they were. Um, Her product line had grown to include four kinds of hair grower, psoriasis cures, soap, face powder, cold creams, perfumes, and deodorant, and something called vanishing cream, which by the ads I've been looking at looks like not what I thought it was, was like a fade cream for freckles or something, but it seems to be a foundation makeup. Um, I didn't realize it had been called vanishing cream, but just that's the context I get from the ad. I guess it does make imperfections vanish. So how many jobs did she provide? Well, 175, 200 on site at the college, however, and this is um, fast forwarding a little bit, but say by the end of the 20s, she had 75,000 agents all over the world. Now think exponentially how many families she has helped to uplift. Mm -hmm. Also, Annie Malone was very generous with her wealth. She bought houses for her relatives, provided education and jobs for her nieces and nephews. She made a point of rewarding employees for good service. If you stayed five years, you got a diamond ring and donated tens of thousands of dollars to charities and institutions that were important to her. The St. Louis Colored Children's Home the Pine Street YMCA, the medical school at Howard University, Tuskegee Institute, 
countless smaller charities. In fact, she funded a maternity ward in the local hospital for African-American women. I think her pet project was the St. Louis Children's Home. It was originally an orphanage, but with Annie's support, they were able to expand to become not only an orphanage, but a daycare center for her employees and yet another family support service within the community. And it's still there. That's the best part. So again, we go back to Mary Church Terrell's lifting as we climb. Well, Annie Malone walked that talk. I can't even guess how many lives her philanthropy touched during her lifetime. It's a rare person, you know, that you can Mm -hmm. point to and say, you literally have changed hundreds of thousands of lives. However, behind the scenes, all was not well. For years, some of the management staff had been I guess let's call it in over their heads in their job responsibilities. And in general, there was a shaky grasp of the whole operation with regard to business, taxes, regulations, etc. Also, Mr. Malone was battling with his wife in ever-increasing public ways for control of the Poro company. He had been made the president of the company. She did keep herself as the founder. She was on technically even footing with him, but he's wanting to get more and more control as the years go on. Does that not sound like Mr. Pope? It does. It does. Although arguably this guy's a little smarter, I would think. And more sly because he had been telling people his side of the story for years. I brought her all these contacts. I did this. I did this. If it weren't for me, this. This success is mine. She's just the figurehead. You know what I mean? Uh Like members of the press that he ran into in his club, influential politicians. He ran with the highest crowd possible in St. Louis and he kind of sowed the seeds of disinformation for years. He was a much more high profile person than she was. He was even a delegate to the Republican convention. So he's in politics. He's talking to a lot of people. The almost inevitable divorce was ugly, ugly and fractured the public opinion. Of course, Mr. Malone had his allies on his side that he'd been carefully curating for many years. And he said, I need half of everything. But the employees... All of her charities that she had been supporting for so many years and the wealthy benefactors of those charities, the churches who had admired and respected her philanthropy, and the National Association of Colored Women were on her side. This was a long and bitter and very public battle. Eventually, he agreed to a $200,000 settlement. Of that, $175,000 went to his attorneys. So he really didn't make out very well, not even close to what he was going for. But I say good. I want to read some of one of the articles. It's This is from a St. Louis paper at the time of the divorce. And the headline is so gross, by the way. Aaron Malone, wealthy Negro seeks divorce. Prominent in charity, church, and politics. Woman who discovered formula to straighten Negro's hair finds her domestic affairs in a tangle. That's the headline. At least her name isn't in the headline, maybe? Not even a silver lining there. Okay. (laughs) No. Um, And it goes on and on and on. And then it says, the divorce petition reveals that although the Malones have been living at the Poro College as formerly, they have occupied separate quarters since February 28th, 1925, and have not spoken to each other since last May. Yeah. Malone charges that Mrs. Malone had an ungovernable temper, that she falsely accused him of infidelity and has refused to speak to him for a year. Okay, that is dire. 
Mm -hmm. He returned home one night to find his clothes in the student quarters with the locks on his family quarters and the library changed. He alleges this action was a desertion, and it's on this ground that the divorce is sought. I know. This article takes up, I would say, two full columns of a paper. I'll give you the link to that article. It's something else. Annie wanted a new start after the departure of Mr. Malone. She couldn't exactly kick him right in the seat of his pants. <laughs> so she just had to remove herself from the situation. And she decided to move the HQ of the Poro College to Chicago when she was 53. Chicago, she said in an interview, in my opinion, is the capital of Negro America. The people here are accomplishing things. The atmosphere is one of commercial striving, endeavor, and promise. St. Louis is a southern city. My experience would lead me to doubt that Negro businesses can grow in the South without a certain amount of restraint and insecurity. Yikes. <laughs> I don't know that St. Louis knows this. They still have a pretty massive parade every year. As we're well, sitting here across the state from St. Louis, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but okay, Annie. Think about like that was in the Mary Todd Lincoln. I mean, that was a Southern city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even now, I mean, how many people, when we say we're from Kansas City, think flyover state? Or think we're in Kansas. Or think we're in Kansas. <laughs> That's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> okay, so um, she bought up a whole block of these Greystone mansions of Gilded Age white millionaires. Oh, yes, that made the newspapers. <laughs> what is happening? And revamped them into a magnificent campus called the Poro Block. Ultimately, uh, the plan was it was going to have the same amenities as the St. Louis operation. It was at 4401 South King Avenue. That's the modern name. It had a different name that uh, it's Martin Luther King now. Uh, of course, it wasn't then. <laughs> no. Incidentally, this place was listed in the Green Book for 15 years as a, quote, tourist home. Safe accommodations for travelers of color uh, made it into the Green Book in Chicago. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I love that part. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, that would be something that she would court, I would think. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was helping when she was in St. Louis. I mean, there was a tornado and she made her building a center for information and rescues. And she, of course, she would court that kind of assistance for the African-American community. I think it's interesting that in the Green Book, though, it says Poro College dot 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 tourist home. <laughs> That's all it says. You have no idea. Well, I don't know. And then you pull up like looking around. Surely I'm not at the right address. Yeah. Although it was pretty famous. So maybe people expected the grandeur they encountered. But nevertheless, the year after the 1929 stock market crash is, you know, it's a sort of famous stock market crash <laughs> is maybe not the best time to splash out like this. But she was providing jobs for a significant number of people during a very, very tough time in the country. So in 1931, she received an honorary master's degree from Howard University, and that is great. But alas, it goes downhill from here. There were a series of lawsuits, first from an ex-employee uh, who had claimed to be the source of all of Annie's success. There was also unscrupulous business practices in her management that were causing lawsuits. There was tax evasion. Like I said, people were in over their heads. There was a 20% tax on luxuries that she was supposed to be collecting. And I am not entirely sure that anyone ever paid that for the entire duration of her company. So the government started coming after her for back taxes and back fees that I believe she literally thought someone was handling. Like, I am paying a whole office full of people that should be dealing with this situation. And I think, honestly, 
No one ever did any of that. And so, you know, you get hit with these surprise bills, just picking at her, picking at her all the time. She had to sell the St. Louis Poro College and, and the building's not there anymore. I know, just to cover her debts. She did kind of stretch it out within the legal system for about eight years before she lost, essentially, and she lost that building. There were still 32 branches of the Poro School throughout the country, however, and she did continue those and her product manufacturing. They had added some cosmetics, lipstick, blush, weave supplies were in the catalog. Um, So she diversified throughout the 40s and the 50s. Um, She had Chuck Berry. I know. I love student <laughs> in the fifties. So, um, there, you know, it's not the grand scale of times gone by. The philanthropy continued as much as it could, but it was never again the heyday that it had been right around the early twenties. No, in the nineteen fifties, Annie's health really declined. She had high blood pressure. She had heart disease. She had very frequent hospitalizations. And on May tenth, nineteen fifty-seven, seventy-nine-year-old Annie Turnbow Pope Malone had a massive stroke and passed away at Providence Hospital in Chicago. She bequeathed her estate, diminished as it was, to her nieces and nephews, as she never had had any children. But from the millions she was worth in the early 20s, her personal worth had declined to somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000. The St. Louis Children's Home had changed its name to the Annie Malone Children and Family Services, and that still is in operation. They still organize a lot of community events, including the Annie Malone Parade and Community Day that's in its 110th year this year. It's celebrated in May, May 17th, hopefully. Yeah, May Day (laughs) might end up being September Day. Yeah, and it's all done in the Ville, which Mm -hmm. is still a hub of activity in St. Louis. I love it. I think it should be clear to us, no matter what I say in the (laughs) CJ Walker episode that follows, (laughs) which I did without any reference to Annie Malone, and it was many years ago, um, it's clear to me that Annie Malone cleared the road for CJ Walker and her legacy, which is also admirable. But Annie Malone didn't have any children or heirs to carry her story forward. And so other than Immediately around her site in St. Louis, I think her legacy has often been forgotten. I do think that's changing. However, in the new C.J. Walker miniseries, if you look on IMDb, I don't think there's a single character named Annie Malone or Annie Turnbow. So I think she, I'm just saying right now, I don't 100% think they included her in the C.J. Walker story. Self-made, which is that story, it's only based on Madam C.J. Walker's life. So I'm going to guess that there's a lot of things that they left out or embellished, which is always sad because she had a great story. So it comes out as a Netflix miniseries on March 20th. So given that we are about to roll the C.J. Walker episode right after we finish talking about Annie Malone, it would be a good watch. And it won't be included in the notes for the C.J. Walker episode because we didn't know about it way back then. (laughs) No, we didn't. Let's talk about media. All right. So... I have a book that I really liked. It's called Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America by Ayanna Bird and Lori Tharps. I was lucky enough to have it on hand from my work with the CJ Walker podcast. (laughs) So I actually own it because I couldn't find it in the library and I was on my bookshelf. In this time of quarantine, where our libraries have now been closed down, that was good to have. 
As far as biographies go, um, I also had to purchase mine through Amazon because I could not get them from my library, and that was pre-quarantine. The best one that I found is called A Friend to All Mankind, Mrs. Annie Turnbull Malone and Poro College by John H. Whitfield. It is very detailed but easy to read. He worked on this book for 10 years, and he cites his sources, which is always good, especially for a story like this, because you're going to find different versions of it all over the place. You know, just little details are changed. So he actually did a lot of research to verify things. Another book that I really liked was called Black Fortunes, the story of six African-Americans who survived slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Wills. This was so easy to read. I thought that this was a great introduction to all of these people. As far as details go, I, I don't know that I would use this as my sole source, especially for teenagers. Maybe this is a really good introduction to a lot of people. And this is not officially a book, but honestly, at 147 pages, it should be a book. Maybe I should send her a note to publish it. Uh -huh. uh, it's a dissertation by a person named Chawana V. Trowick called Annie Malone and Poro College Building an Empire of Beauty in St. Louis, Missouri from 1915 to 1913. It was presented as part of, of a um, doctoral program. She is going for a doctorate of philosophy. Interestingly. So I should post a link to that if you want to read it. Like I said, it's a 147 pages. <laughs> but uh, and I did not realize that a dissertation is 147 pages. And so doctors, I salute you. <laughs> I don't have any more books. Do you? I don't. And there is a significant lack of movies. Like I said, C.J. Walker has overshadowed Annie Malone. Um, there is a movie that is in progress called The Black Hair Empire Movie, and I don't 100% know. They have a very intricate website, but I cannot get any details on how far the actual production of the film is going. <laughs> well, I actually can because I reached out to the producer. Got it. Yeah, they are in production right now, and we'll link you to that website so you can follow along with it. However, there are delays due to our current health crisis to, for interviews. So they're in production, but they're kind of stalled out right now. Bummer. It sounds really good. And I loved, you know, getting their input. And they really like that John Whitfield book, too. So there is an extraordinary website to use that has a lot of pictures and graphics, very easy to read, from the Freeman Institute. And I'll provide you a link with that, too. And it is really, really nice. Also, the Chicago Public Library has a collection of the Robert O. French papers. I'm not exactly sure, like a second cousin. Mm -hmm. He is a descendant of one of her siblings. So I, I don't know what you call. I don't know where the chart is on where cousins land, but he was a relative of hers and kind of looking around, discovering like, wait, no, nobody's saving this stuff. Nobody's telling her story. And so he gathered a lot of information together and um, they are hosted there at the Chicago Public Library. They've digitized a lot of the papers and they are available to you. There's nine linear feet of papers, it says. <laughs> 
There's also a lot of papers that are digitized at the Smithsonian, the National Museum of African American History and Culture on their website. So uh, we'll link you to that too. There is a lot of history in there and a lot of rabbit holes you can fall down. And there is the Annie Malone Historical Society.org, which is online. Their purpose, they say, is to share the story of extraordinary vision, dedicated commitment, and success that was the life of Annie Turnbow Pope Malone. And there's a lot of information on there as well as a lot of pictures. And we will also link you up to the website for the Annie Malone Children and Family Services events that they have going on. So there's stuff on their site too. So if you're in St. Louis area in May and we're all able to go around in groups of larger than 50, that would be great. I think they're about to lock down Kansas City, actually. I would not Mm -hmm. be surprised if restaurants and bars get locked down uh, in the next week. No, me too. So we hope that we have done a little justice to Annie Malone after having focused on C.J. Walker like everyone else for such a long period of time. So we're proud of being part of bringing back Annie Malone's legacy and hope that this serves to kind of right the wrong of having left her out so long ago when we did the C.J. Walker episode. So uh, without further ado, I think we will simply play the C.J. Walker episode after this one. And thank you so much for listening. We wish you all the very best. And do join the lounge. We are very active there talking about ways that we can entertain ourselves in these troubled times. So please join us in the lounge. You just go to our Facebook page and then there's a button called join group. Please answer the question because we kind of have a policy, don't we, Susan, that if you don't answer the question, you don't get in. So do join us. That is where the action is, not on the Facebook page. If you would like to banter with Susan and Susan alone, you can find her on Twitter. And I have a Pinterest board for Annie Malone, and I will release that into the public when we release the episode. So thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned right after this for the CJ Walker episode. So not goodbye. Just (laughs) go get a drink. Press pause. See you soon. Here's your 30-second summary. Born into a family of former slaves and orphaned at an early age, Sarah Breedlove, better known as Madam C.J. Walker, parlayed hard work, a talent for marketing, and a strong spirit of philanthropy into a business empire that lifted tens of thousands of her fellow African Americans out of poverty. The end. Let's talk about Madam C.J. Walker. But first, let's place her in history. In 1906, Willis Carrier received the first patent for the air conditioner. Will Kellogg and Charles Boland founded the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company, which is now Kellogg's. A magnitude 7.8 earthquake in San Francisco and the resulting firestorm killed over 3,000 people and destroyed 75% of that city. The Wright brothers patented their airplane. President Theodore Roosevelt signed into law the Antiquities Act, which enabled him to protect such things as the famous Devil's Tower in Wyoming and the Grand Canyon. 
The code SOS was adopted as the official warning signal by the first conference on wireless telegraphy. Ozzie Nelson, Gracie Allen, and Estee Lauder were born. Marshall Field, Susan B. Anthony, and painter Paul Cezanne died. And on January 4th, 1906, Sarah Breedlove McWilliams married Charles Joseph Walker and changed her name and the name of her famous company to Madam C.J. Walker. Hello, and welcome to the show. This is Beckett. Susan is out with a health issue, so today we have a special guest host who's been so gracious to stop in for her. Alea Williams of the 18 to 49 podcast, whose tagline is, we will edutain you, which seems to go very well with this podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do on your show? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I love pop culture. I love talking about entertainment. And I wanted a way to talk about it without annoying all of my Facebook friends. And so <laughs> I decided to start a dedicated show. And I invited my friend Brandy along to co-host with me. And, you know, we like some shows that are the same. And then we have um, completely different tastes in other ways. So we always have like a really dynamic episode uh, comparing and contrasting what we've <laughs> we've watched over the week. And it's a lot of fun. So we cover um, TV and pop culture and viral sensations. Nice. Well, let's just move right in to our coverage of Madam C.J. Walker. Sarah Breedlove was born on December 23rd, 1867 in Delta, Louisiana to Owen and Minerva Breedlove. She's the fifth of the six children in the family. But get this, baby Sarah was actually the very first member of the family to be born as a free person. Every other member of the family had, before the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, been held as slaves. They might have been free technically, but Owen and Minerva continued to work for the man that had owned them, uh, Robert Burney, over at the Grandview Plantation, which is no longer there. Uh, it was near Vicksburg, and Union soldiers had laid waste to every useful thing within striking distance back toward the beginning of the Civil War. I don't think freedom meant as much to them as it could because they were not allowed to buy any land, they were not allowed to conduct any business, they never had been allowed to read or write. Southern states had passed some pretty draconian laws after the Civil War. They were called the Black Codes, and they restricted movement and labeled anyone on the move as, quote, a vagrant. That sounds like the laws that Queen Elizabeth had passed, if you recall, back to another episode, and it really ended up punishing poor people then, just like it did during this period. As a vagrant in the American South at this time, you could legitimately, quote, be conscripted for work. And I'm sorry to say that the Union Army and its policies were hardly more free than slavery. You could be arrested for pretty much near anything. Impudence? Uh swearing. So some of my <laughs> friends would be for the chop. And then you'd just be leased back to a plantation owner as convict labor. So how much freedom is that? Not much freedom. And I think, you know, a lot of people like her parents, you know, freedom sounded great, but most of them were all born into slavery. So they knew no other way. So, you know, once you're freed, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? How are you going to take care of yourself? A lot of people ended up staying on at plantations after the Emancipation Proclamation. Not all, but, you know, a, a good number did. Well, and better the devil you know, I guess. Right. In yeah. this case. So here are the breed loves working on the same land 
under the system that's called sharecropping, where the landowner provides the seeds and either tools or access to tools in exchange for a share of the crops. And in this case, it was cotton. And if the crops failed, too bad for you. You still owe me X dollars. You know, sorry that happened. The crops had failed the year Sarah was born, but for a few years anyway, they were able to, if not prosper, at least earn themselves a living. Cotton and the kitchen garden grew from spring to fall, and there's no daycare. There's no stay-at-home moms. Everyone's got to go out and work just to survive. And as soon as she could walk, practically, Sarah had her little job. She was carrying water to everyone and bringing sacks or supplies. And by six, she could help plant and harvest. Now, my son and I, who is 11, we're just reading Farmer Boy. Remember Laura Ingalls Wilder's husband? Oh, yes. Yes. And in that book, Almanza Wilder, at almost exactly the same year as this, which I... um, She touches so many subjects that we have covered, as I'll mention throughout the show. Um, He was working from dawn past sundown on his parents' farm at the same time. So it wasn't just a poverty situation or a Southern situation, as Almonzo Wilder was the son of a prosperous farmer from upstate New York. You know, but children were expected to work. There was a big difference, big difference in regard to their schooling. Almonzo and his brothers and sisters had the chance to go. And Sarah had no opportunity, no time, for one thing, which during the fall was common enough at this time, but no chance. Schools for black children were becoming more common in, say, New Orleans, big cities, paid for and promoted by the black community for the most part, with some northern influence. Um, Freedmen schools educated children and adults. Education was seen legitimately as the only way, I guess, out. But here in the country... That parish never did have more than 400 people in it. Education is going to be pretty hard to come by, even if you had the time to go. Mama and her daughters had a side business of taking in washing on Saturdays down at the riverbank with lye soap, which I cannot imagine how people ever invented that in the first place. Right. <laughs> That's like the worst thing. Well, and then how do you know that wood ash water and if you age it and then you add to oil is going to make a good cleaning agent? It seems like so many leaps to make. I always wonder with people who invented something and, you know, came up with these things for the first time, how they really figured it out. And and you always have to tip your hat to the person who figured out that a certain plant or food was poisonous because, you know, someone had to figure that poison ivy situation out. It's a little uh, mind blowing. And even potatoes are in the nightshade family. So if you're really thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is poisonous, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be eating potatoes. Right. Well, good for them for inventing it. It was thousands of years before this period uh, and until commercial detergents came in common use in homes around World War II, lye soap was everybody's go-to. So then when Sarah was only seven years old, seven, within a very short period of months, her mother died, her father remarried, and then he died too. It seems likely it was either cholera or yellow fever in both cases, though there was no cause of death, no death certificate. In this time and in this place, there were not too many doctors that would be willing to treat people of color. And as we have talked about on this podcast before, the medicine that was available was not that awesome anyway, so it might not have made much difference. It was an official epidemic. Tens of thousands of people died in this area. The three older brothers tried to make a go of it on the farm. They were having so much trouble even making rent that the oldest moved across the river to Vicksburg to look for work as a laborer. Just years of hard work and barely making it. Sister Luvenia and she worked as hard as they could at laundry, but 
When Sarah was 10, there was just another yellow fever epidemic. And this one struck 120,000 people and killed thousands of them. And it really brought trade and farming to a standstill in the area. No one knew what caused it or how to stop it. And then the cotton crop failed. So, oh my gosh. Well, the girls, and I assume Solomon, the youngest brother, uh, moved over to town to try to get work as a laundress or a servant. Meanwhile, her brothers were persuaded to move north to St. Louis by their preacher, who told them the only way to escape was to physically get out of the South. And they did go, and thousands of others went. That preacher was actually run out of the state by a band of armed white men not long afterward for encouraging the labor force to leave the area. That's what they're up against. They were expected to stay no matter what the conditions, and her brothers wouldn't do it, and they left. And Luvania married a scary, scary mean man. And I'm sorry to say there weren't a lot of options for getting away from him. Sarah escaped by marrying Moses McWilliams when she was only 14. Isn't it interesting in, in that time, and we, we've heard these stories in various places, books and all that, of people who escape a bad situation by getting married. And that was just because there were so there were so few options, you know, for women to, to change their situations back then. Living today, I can't think of escaping a problem by getting married. <laughs> I know. It's not been so long since even, I think, in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. 1950s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's your path right there. Well, uh, Moses was a dock worker, and both of them picked cotton during harvest time. The Saturday laundry business didn't cease. It was just a... It was a hard life, but she had a home of her own and was a little bit content. And at 17, Sarah had their daughter, Lelia. So talk about balancing work and home life. There was never a choice in that matter because most African-American families at this time absolutely had to have that second income to just break even. The jobs that paid more for the husbands just weren't there. Now, when Sarah was 20, her husband Moses died we can't have any bit of good luck. We cannot. <laughs> right. Um, no one seems to know why, although a couple of places hinted that he died in a workplace accident. Um, and before Workman's Comp, it was like so sad. You know, too bad. So sad. Well, Sarah was a widow with a small child. Uh, what was she going to do? And she took a bold step, a leap, really, into the unknown and bought a riverboat ticket and headed up the Mississippi in search of a better life. So her brothers had worked hard at those menial jobs that were available, and they had studied at night to become barbers. Now, this job was sort of being taken over by black men, even in the fanciest of hotels. That was definitely a way up. It was a job that you could control your own income, that you could, by virtue of your personality and your talent, really make it on your own. And that was rare enough in this time. Uh, Sarah went to stay with them at first, but the only job she could find was as a live-in maid where they were not about to let her bring her daughter. And there were no daycares. There's no cheerful granny or sister or friend to help her out in her new city. So get this. Sarah had to leave Lelia at an orphanage. That was her only option. Can you imagine? I mean, you've lost your parents, you've lost your husband, and then you have to leave your one child behind. That's got to be hard for any parent. The St. Louis Colored Orphans Home, as it was called, had been built by the efforts of a group of middle-class black women really just the year before. So it came along just at the right time, and it was just sheer luck, finally some good luck, that it was there for her, and they were so 
what's the word? I guess I'm looking for flexible, maybe, or kind. Um, They weren't going to place Lilia up for adoption. It was a daycare situation, I think, but just the thought of the the orphanage where she stayed, you know, six and a half days out of the seven, Sarah could only see her on her one afternoon off. It was the bridge she needed for about a year. And then she saved up, got her own apartment, and was able to start a laundry business from home. And Lilia and she were together again. And ultimately, Lilia could go to school. The dreams of Sarah's parents to have given their own children an education were finally coming true for their grandchild. That's amazing. Sarah did good work and soon word of mouth had her business kind of growing. In these days before automatic machines, almost everyone that could outsourced the laundry. That had been true for centuries. Laundry was a very disruptive process. <laughs> uh, it was messy and it was uh, hot and loud and hard work. And she Laundry was- is still a disruptive process. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's my favorite. That is my favorite chore, I think. You know, it's better than others. And I will say my life changed when I had a washer and dryer in my own apartment. That that made me just want to do laundry all the time. But it's still annoying. <laughs> well, the hardest part to me is the folding. Yeah, I, I am not a folder. Mm-mm. It either stays in the dryer or goes on a hanger. But that's about as far as I can... As far as I can take it. There is a little bit of a sinking feeling when you're on a roll and then you open the dryer to switch it out and you're like, oh, all these clothes stuffed in here, (laughs) all wrinkly. Oh, we we have it so hard, don't we? (laughs) I know. Listen to us. Uh, Perspective. (laughs) I don't think Sarah would know what to do with what the situation I have now in my bedroom. I had my husband move it to the upstairs closet off the bedroom. It's literally two feet from the where the clothes are to the washing machine. (laughs) Yes. But still, I managed to put the back of my hand on my forehead. Now, Sarah, on the other hand, she had to walk the finished goods that she had had to iron and then fold, because there's no dryer, back across the bridge, the Eads Bridge, in a wagon to her customers' back doors. This Eads Bridge, by the way, which is what St. Louis was known for until the arch went up in the 1960s, it is amazing looking. It's a big steel, looks like a sideways Eiffel Towery thing. Um, nobody could trust that it would be a good bridge. Uh, it had been built about a decade before Sarah used it. And it was so nerve wracking. It's not a big concrete structure. And people are like, that is totally going to fall in. That the builder borrowed the elephants from the zoo and tromped them across back and forth to prove that it was strong enough for people to walk across. And then when that wasn't enough, he got 14 locomotives on there at the same time. And finally, people were like, all right, I guess I can walk across with my wagon of laundry. It's still there. Still cool. If you want to walk on it yourself, it's a national historic landmark. So if you're in St. Louis or passing through, it's right by the arch. You can hit them both the same day. Sarah married John Davis when she was 27. Mysterioso, not a lot known about him, except for the marriage was extremely troubled. Mr. Davis was a drinker and a very violent man, reminiscent of the stress and fear of living with her sister's husband all those years ago. Lelia ended up missing an entire year of school. Um, One of the authors that I read puts forth that perhaps she was moving from place to place to get away from John Davis so he wouldn't follow them. Hmm. Um, That is not a good situation. No, not at all. So Sarah's church became very important to her for spiritual support, yes, but, you know, practically speaking, too, there was a teacher there, a teacher named Jessie Robinson, a friend actually she'd known back from the orphanage days. She had volunteered there. She helped her a lot. Number one, 
there's no reason that you can't learn to read and write, I'll help you. If there's night school, I'll pay for it. Number two, leave your husband. He's horrible and he's dragging you down. Women should not have to deal with this. Just leave him. The end. And three, save a little every week. Even a tiny bit. Just save a little every week. All of which Sarah did. And although Lilia did not manage to pass the entrance exam to the local school, probably because of that year or so of moving around, not going to school, and avoiding John Davis... She didn't make it into the local school, but Sarah was able to send her to a boarding school in Tennessee for $8 a month, which is about $240 a month now. So one dream was well on its way. Lilia was in high school. Beyond anything her parents had dreamed of for their own children, her church, which was called the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, was known nationally for its charitable arm, the Might Missionary Society. Um, I really like how practical and personal they were in their help. So there's big things, but then there's also, does somebody need grocery money for the week? Let's just get them the groceries and take them over there. You know, that kind of thing. So there's very practical help going on. It's very interesting. You know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm positive there are churches that are like that today. But I think the churches of yesteryear were so interesting because they were so much the, the fabric of people's lives. And like you said, it wasn't just about the spiritual uh, support. They provided a lot of practical help and a sense of community to people. And my mom grew up, <laughs> you know, after Madam C.J. Walker. But she grew up in the South, part of a church community. And you know, it was the kind of thing where Sunday you were at church all day and you were probably there a couple other evenings a week too. But that's because it was more than just the sermon. You had meals together and you did things together. And, you know, when someone was sick or had lost someone, you know, the community supported them. So churches were a real great support system to people back then. And I I think there are a lot of churches now that, that don't have that level of involvement, but I know that there are some that still are, and that's a pretty great thing. It is a great thing. And I'm kind of wondering, because back in the South, right after the Civil War, some of those, quote, black codes that they enacted restricted the population of former slaves from gathering in large groups, except at church. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, so if you're going to talk political or strategy or even just like have a session of just talking about your worries, that's the place to do it Yep, legitimately and not get in trouble too. So I wonder if it's an offshoot of that. But anyway, they, they were so known, this church, nationally for this, that during the 1904 World's Fair, not our usual 1893 World's Fair that seems to come up in every episode and has now come up in this one too, but the Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis World's Fair, the St. Paul Church hosted the national delegation of the National Association of Colored Women, whose members included Harriet Tubman and Ida Wells, who's episode 25, a famous journalist, uh, an anti-lynching journalist, we've talked about her before, and Margaret Washington, the wife of Booker T. Washington. And even though Mr. Margaret, Booker T. himself, was giving speeches at the fair, and the local ladies were so excited for their day at the fair, the National Association of Women decided to boycott it in protest of the fair's policies in hiring black workers and in protest of how segregated it was. And instead, they had their every other year national meeting right there at the church. And Sarah met black women from all over the country who'd made a point of practical charitable works, orphanages, 
day nurseries, which is daycare, retirement homes, convalescent homes, schools. Their motto was lifting others as we climb. Oh, that really struck a chord. Their, you know, their will and their power to do good really impressed Sarah. The talk about the big issues of the day, lynching, segregation, women's rights, made her think big in a way she'd never really done before, never had an opportunity to do before. She'd never been exposed to such thought. Um, meeting all those women was quite an education for her. But Sarah felt like she had to stay on the periphery a bit. She was embarrassed to appear in her worn clothes among all these well-dressed visitors, though she did take it all in. And she was just horribly ashamed of her hair, which due probably to poor nutrition and quack hair care treatments was breaking off short. She had bald spots and the harsh chemicals to be found in a lot of products could burn you instead of help you. Oh, I know this era of patent medicines. You know, sometimes all you needed was a good label and enough PR, but not an effective product. We remember all those female remedies. Alea, we talked about this in the Lydia Pinkham episode. Lydia Pinkham was a pioneering person in female medicine. Female medicine. Yes. <laughs> how, how, how should I put that? But um, mm-hmm. so we talked about how much patent medicine was there that was mostly alcohol, which sure would yep. make you feel better for a little while. Mm-hmm. But Lydia Pinkham's remedy was actually effective and it was a groundbreaking product. But she, Sarah, wasn't alone in this. Women were struggling with this all over the country. This is where my experience is not there. It's not there. I don't have any experience with this, but reading newspaper articles from the time, women did not want to go back to the tight braids that had been so recently, keep in mind what year this is, so recently associated with slavery, nor did they necessarily want to copy white hairstyles, but what they wanted were options, their own options. Sarah happened upon both a solution for her hair and a way to better her income, She had tried a product called the Poro Company Wonderful Hair Grower that seemed to work. And what's more, the Poro Company founder, a St. Louis woman named Annie Malone Turnbow, later would train her as a saleswoman for both the hair grower and for a gentle, non-damaging straightener. Which straighteners, I I didn't realize how political this was until I got into it. Very political. I mean, there's, there's still some of that that remains today. Kids are still being kicked out or suspended from school for simply walking into the building with the hair that's on their head. Yes. <laughs> Which is just insane. It's completely it's completely insane. Meanwhile, my child goes to a school where you can show up with a purple mohawk and they'll be like, lovely self-expression. <laughs> my kind of school. That's good. Mm-hmm. So the income potential here over her laundry work was double or triple what she could hope for. She made $1.50 a day, which is $90 or so a day. Uh, You know, you could live on that. Yeah, depending on where in the U.S. you live. That's true. But without higher education, you can't go to be a teacher and you can't go to be a nurse. I mean, and she can't even read. So, well, she's taking classes. So she's in the process of learning to read. But, you, you know, those opportunities, you know, she just didn't have to be a professional. She saw an opportunity here and she leaped ahead. Hair, so political. Race, class, history, character, all these things were bound up in what she planned to do. I'm just going to read two quotes, uh, two quotes from a African-American author and organizer of the day, just to give you a little hint about the undercurrents that were going at the time. 
What every woman who straightens her hair out needs is not her appearance changed, but her mind changed. And then, uh, and I'm going to use the term Negro because it's a quote. If Negro women would use half the time they spend on trying to get white to get better, the race would move forward a pace. So I didn't know. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm told it is still so. Like you said, even now, the armed forces and their hair policy even. Yep. Mm-hmm. Arguments among friends. I mean, we'll give you plenty <laughs> of links at the end to follow. If, if you want to go down that road, um, there are rabbit holes that I can start you upon your merry way in the show notes and learn more about that aspect of the story because there's a lot. There's a lot. So we need to get back to Sarah, though. She's making a living selling Poro hair products door to door. And she met a man. She met a man called Charles Walker, a hard worker, unlike husband number two, with a sunny disposition at that, nearly miraculous. He sold advertising for the three black newspapers in St. Louis. Here's the thing, though. St. Louis is just saturated with Poro saleswomen. It's tough to break new territory. It's tough to increase your income. And what was even holding her to this place anyway? All of her St. Louis brothers, three of the four of them had died. I looked this up and the average life expectancy for a black man during this time period was only 33 years old. Just 100 years ago. Disease took a lot of people in this era before modern medicine. A lot. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's another one of those things where you look at 2016 and think things aren't perfect, but man, they're a heck of a lot better than (laughs) than they used to be. You know, we... It doesn't happen on this one, thank goodness, but we talk about child loss all the time. And mm-hmm. How many how yeah. many of your children could you expect to grow up and the percentages are not good? Or how many women lost their lives during childbirth? Yep. I mean, the whole thing is just risky business. That's why when people ask me, would you like to time travel? I was like, for a day. <laughs> yeah, maybe to the future. <laughs> maybe not back. I wouldn't go back to stay for sure. So Lelia is off at school. Remember, she's at boarding school, so you don't have to consider her exactly. There's no real reason not to take another leap. So Sarah moved to Denver, where her last surviving brother had moved his wife and four daughters with a dollar fifty in her pocket and a bag full of Poro products to sell. I think that was the initial plan, just open new territories. But gosh, people are brave. You just put your things in a satchel and just head off into the unknown. It's I don't know that I'd have it in me. I guess I moved to Boston. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not sure that I would. I don't know. Good for her. Well, two of our previous subjects are walking around Denver. I, you thought I was joking that she connected with so many people. They're walking around Denver right now. Hattie McDaniel is barely out of high school here in Denver. Hattie McDaniel, who played Mammy in Gone with the Wind, and she's performing in live theater. And Margaret, the unsinkable Brown, is still six years away from her Titanic fame. She's you know, in Denver it, too. It, it blows me away sometimes because, you know, I have a limited, I will admit, sometimes I'm a Californian who can't take their California blinders off. But when I was learning more about Madam C.J. Walker and, you know, came across that little nugget about Hattie McDaniel, you know, it always, I always think, wow, there were black people in Denver back then? Yep. <laughs> but there were. About 10,000, not a whole lot, but it was a very active community. 10,000 then is a pretty solid number. Yeah, it really, it really is. And I, uh, I encourage you to listen to the Hattie McDaniel podcast. I was moved to tears during part of it. Down with the Wind is one of my favorite movies. So, and I just I really think I definitely do that. I learned a lot. Um, 
Sarah got a job immediately as a cook. Uh, some say in a boarding house and some say for a private house. But either way, it doesn't matter. She came into contact with a pharmacist named Mr. Schultz. And, you know, at the time, pharmacists were more like chemists. They didn't just dispense medicine and put it in a bottle. They actually concocted it, had to mix it up on the premises. And the germ of an idea that Sarah had to make her own product sprang to life. So Schultz gave her suggestions as to ingredients and properties of chemicals, etc. And Sarah spent her evenings experimenting with different combinations. Uh, she had five other guinea pigs in the house anyway, her sister-in-law and nieces. So I hope the early tries didn't go too far wrong. I hope. Um, that's brave, too, to let someone put unknown chemical. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it could go so wrong or so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, finally, she thought she had what she needed. And later she would say that her formulas were given to her in a dream. But I would say that, you know, hard work plus your subconscious ticking away in the background are a pretty powerful combination. So just take the credit. I don't have too much patience with <laughs> with the dream uh, mm -hmm. givers of awesomeness. <laughs> no, I do that too, though. If there's a problem, I kind of like think about it right before I go to bed. And sometimes when I wake up, there's a solution sitting there for me. So it's kind of magical. Sarah began with a system of three products. Vegetable shampoo, which was coconut oil, olive oil, our old friend lye, violets, and lavender. That's pretty much it. Uh, some of it came from Africa, she would say. So it's super exotic. And I guess she means the coconut oil. Maybe. Although I think you could just buy it locally. So it came from there, yes. And then her wonderful hair grower. The main ingredient there seemed to be something called precipitated sulfur. So I'll provide the nerds a link to precipitated sulfur if you want to learn about what it does and its properties. I think its main purpose was to heal the scalp. That's her whole point in the first place is scalps that will grow any hair will also grow healthy hair. So we got to get the scalp ready to provide its crop of hair. That mm -hmm. was her, her goal with the wonderful hair grower. And then Glossine, used with a heated comb, uh, the hot oil treatment. That's the most controversial part of her treatment, by the way. The hot comb plus Glossine. Ultimately, there's over 20 products in her line. But right now, these are the first three. Sarah Davis, as she is known now, has begun selling her products door to door. The women of Denver could not get enough of them. Sarah had two great tools at her disposal besides the products. Free treatment, but she's going to charge you for the products. Now that technique is still used to great success at department store makeup counters all over the country. That model sounds very familiar. Yes. <laughs> and then her own before picture. People couldn't believe it. People couldn't believe it. Best testimonial ever. You know how anti-aging creams use 16-year-old models to market their products? 
You see, a lot of other manufacturers did the same thing. At this time, they would use women in their ads whose hair was already, quote, managed. That's a word from one of my friends. So their hair already looked like the end result that they wanted before anything had been done to it. Yes. This was a refreshingly honest approach to the customers. They just couldn't believe it's the same person standing right in front of them. Especially in an era... You know, there are a lot of women who are still like this today, but especially, you know, quote unquote, back in the day, people wouldn't leave the house undone. So to see someone before all the prep happened was crazy. I mean, you know, I've never been a fancy, like crazy with the styling kind of person. But I remember in college when people would show up for class with their hair in a ponytail and in pajamas. I just, that was the first time. (laughs) So even though I wasn't fancy, that was a whole new level of casual. But then you think back to Madam CJ Walker's day, you know, my grandmother's day, my mother's day, um, people, women, especially men, but men too, nobody left the house, you know, without all the coifing and the making sure that every detail was perfect before they left the house. So it was a pretty big deal to see a before picture of someone, especially a black woman. (laughs) Yes, yes. And right next to it on the advertising material was Miss Davis, as she was, Mrs. Davis, with long hair. And so uh, her products must have worked. And she did so well at this that she was able to give up her cook job and cut her outside work to only a couple days laundry a week. And she plowed most of the profits right back into the business and her name was really getting out there. Mr. C.J. Walker back in St. Louis had been an invaluable supplier of advice and a good friend. And now he's something more. He moved to Denver and Sarah became Mrs. C.J. Walker right after her 38th birthday. Mr. Walker had a couple of great ideas. Mail order, for one. I mean, he's an ad man. They could supply to more customers straight out of their own house that way. And for another, how about a little rebranding? So Sarah was now calling herself Madam C.J. Walker. It lent a note of la attitude. How about that for a word? It led an air of pinkies up and of friends. You know, Madam C.J. Walker's wonderful hair grower was much sought after. And Mr. Walker was pleased with the sales they were making. It's really not great amount of sales, a couple hundred a week. But Sarah, as we should still call her for clarity, was convinced that she could expand infinitely if she could just get herself out there. No, it's a waste of time, said Mr. Her, as Mr. Hers often do. You won't even make your expenses, you know. But my name will be out there, she thought. My name will be out there. My face will be out there. And it's important. Even if I don't make expenses, it's very good for my business. So Sarah put Lelia and the cousins, she had four of them, all women, in charge of mail order and manufacturing and took off with Mr. CJ for a one and a half year blitz of some neighboring states and some as far off as New York and Mississippi. She was now making more in a week than she had made in five months as a laundress. She got the idea to sort of clone herself. If she trained women to show and sell the products and provide the treatments just as she would, and she took part of every sale, she could expand more quickly and thoroughly and would provide good employment for black women whose opportunities otherwise were not good. And so with about 25 salespeople out there, soon the company was making 5200 a month and the mail order business was almost too difficult for five women to keep up with back at home. Avon had begun in the 1890s with the same principle of door-to-door saleswomen who worked for a central company. And Fuller Brush started about the same time too. So this idea wasn't novel novel, but 
it was pretty new and it was pretty untried and untested at this point. So her success was pretty great. They really did have to relocate. As we talked about before, Denver, it had been a nice place to start, but it didn't have the largest population of either customers or potential salespeople. Not a steady supply anyway. And so Sarah, CJ, and Lelia first moved to Pittsburgh, where they opened a school for training new agents. And they now decided to call them hair culturists, because the focus was not on matching some artificial, I guess we can say it, white standard of beauty, but in caring for and preparing customers' hair so that had a chance to grow and thrive more naturally. That's the hook. That's the marketing. The first Lelia College of Beauty culture turned out graduates who were able to earn enough so rather than work, their children could go to school. So she's not just lifting the mother out of poverty, she's pulling up the second generation too. Maybe based on her timidity among all of those prominent well-dressed women at the World's Fair so long ago, not so long ago, just a few years really, Madam C.J. Walker believed that outward appearances or your confidence in your own appearance would bring you success. And in her training materials, she advised the sales force to not only take pride in their own appearance, you know, representatives of the company and everything, that's pretty usual, but to pamper their clients, pamper them, encourage them to be confident, encourage them to feel valued and important to get recharged. You know, we'd say that now. They didn't say that then. With more drive to be a force for good in their own homes and in the community, she's just not only lifting up the next generation, now she's working on community involvement. So people need that so much recharge. I think women do, especially, but I've only seen it from this end. Maybe right. it's an all states. <laughs> yeah, I can only speak to that as a woman, but community is very important. And, you know, again, back in, in that time, your community was definitely face to face. We have so many more options for um, creating community now because of the internet, that local community, it's still important now, but was essential then. Her name and her ways were getting out there in the community. She started to be regarded by others much as she had looked at those ladies of the NACW. Not really, like I said, so long ago. It's just a few Mm -hmm. years. Yep admiration for how far she'd come, appreciation for all she was doing for others, all within this little four-year time span that she didn't even start until she was 38 years old. So late bloomers, we salute you. (laughs) She wanted so badly to have and make connections to Booker T. Washington. He was the voice of Black entrepreneurship in America. He is the big cheese that she wanted to achieve recognition from and help from. She sent him a note asking for his help with some stock options. She wanted to take her company public. And he, I have to say, what what are we going to say? An artful dismissal. I mean, he really was like, well, your little adventure. He had no faith in it at all. Um, and he really, I know she aimed high for going to the very top of the pyramid But he really kind of slapped her down. Nonetheless, she went on. She actually mortgaged a house to get the stock and moved her HQ to Indianapolis about a year afterward. Though Lilia, who'd married a local man, was left to run the original school in Pittsburgh, which is not there anymore, which stinks. It was on 2 Wiley Avenue. I couldn't find it on Google Street View. That'd be really great kind of historical landmark if it was there. It isn't. Well, um... 
Indianapolis at the time was billed as the crossroads of America. So not only it was a transportation hub, that's good for keeping costs down, but it had a thriving black business community that actually campaigned for her to relocate there. See, Booker T. Washington doesn't want anything to do with her, but a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do. And soon, brace yourself, she had almost a thousand agents, a thousand, all over the country. Her factory expanded twice and gave good, steady employment to the local community with the factory right there, too. She hired some college educated people of color to manage her business, which would have been unheard of 25 years prior to this. But despite being the kind of successful person that has bankers and store managers and car salesmen, Billing out their front doors to fawn over her the second she pulled up, despite being an employer of thousands, despite being a patron of the arts and a real estate investor. Still, one day at the movies, a clerk rejected her dime and said the price had gone up a quarter, but only for colored people, said the clerk. What is it going to take? So she had to sue. They settled out of court and that theater and the ISIS was eventually torn down. That will show you. But like, what is it going to take to get acceptance? What? Sarah pledged such a shockingly high amount to the local building fund for the local, quote, colored YMCA that her visibility increased exponentially, though she said, helping our boys will help our girls, but eventually I hope to put up a new center for girls, too. That didn't happen till 1924. So she's also struggling with sexism. Not only the color line, but the sex line is bad, too. And when Madam C.J. Walker wrote again to Booker T. Washington, who, you know, he's the man to know if you're a black entrepreneur, to mm-hmm. ask if she could introduce her work and her journey to a gathering of thousands of black farmers he was hosting at his Tuskegee Institute. Even though he often said that farmers passed through to become businessmen, her industry got no respect from him. And as far as he was concerned, all that beauty products marketed to black people wanted to do was whitewash them. So she's also struggling with prejudice, even against her line of work. Mm-hmm. It was such a struggle for her to gain the slightest bit of recognition from him, despite her speech making all over the country by now, growing fame, growing philanthropy. He had taken against her so thoroughly that during a meeting of black entrepreneurs that he hosted, he blocked a request from an audience member that she speak. She's sitting right there. A public snub from one of your heroes has got to hurt some. She didn't let it bring her down. She just took her own opportunity to share her story with the audience. Uh, She stood up in the middle of the meeting and said, surely you're not going to shut the door in my face. You know, he was. He was. Um, Later, her impromptu speech from the audience was reported in the papers as one of the hits of the conference. Though, from his perspective, can you see? I mean, it's pretty presumptuous. (laughs) Right, right. Like some rando to stand up in your conference. If you were in a panel and someone squeezed in like that, that's so I understand. That is a huge party foul. Yeah. So I understand his feeling, but he had had opportunities to not have that happen to him. But even I kind of cringed. I was like, really? You just stood up? Oh, has anything like that ever happened? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I do a lot of speaking and events and occasionally you'll get someone in the audience who goes on and on and on, but sometimes it it usually happens with like a panel, Mm. you know, you'll have a panel of experts and, and maybe I'm just over aware, but 
I try to be cognizant of the fact that I'm not the only one who has something to share. And you'll get these panelists who just feel like it's suddenly their platform to tell you everything they've ever wanted to tell you. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So that's, that, that gets a little out of control sometimes, but yeah, I mean, as you're describing this scene, I'm totally picturing it in my head and going, I've experienced something like this before. <laughs> <laughs> She's just so eager to impress him. That's her Everest, I think. Well, after that speech, um, people did want to meet her. So it worked in some ways, although Booker T hardened his heart a little bit. Um, People wanted to learn from her and invitations to speak poured in. So she traveled around not only being the saleswoman of saleswomen, but she gave a speech called The Negro Woman in Business that was so inspirational um, and caused a lot of people to feel a little hope that they too could better their lot. That's exactly what the speech was intended to do. On a personal level, Mr. Walker had become very unsatisfied with his role in the company. He was not a man who was comfortable with playing second fiddle to his wife. He was not comfortable with being Madam C.J. Walker's husband. That was offensive to him. And he showed it by having affairs and drinking to excess and otherwise becoming quite disagreeable. Lovely. And uh, yes, she filed for divorce in 1912. But surprise, she'd actually never been divorced from Mr. Davis. (laughs) Yikes. Whoops. We forgot <laughs> to do something. Um, Details. I know. Well, luckily, her crack legal team handled the press and the case. <laughs> uh, he could have really made things very difficult for her, but I don't think he knew he could. So hooray. But Mr. Walker never stopped pleading to come back. So there's that. But he knew the formulas and he tried twice with two different girlfriends to knock off her products. So forget him. You know, forget him. She had a counterfeiter and. She had to put pressure on her can supplier to not sell to anyone else. And they she made did so much business that they acquiesced immediately and apologized to her. I want to say one thing here just to get it truth and honesty. Remember, she worked for a company called the Poro Manufacturing Company. Mm-hmm. Annie Malone Trumbo had created this product in St. Louis, etc. Her first product had been called the Wonderful Hair Grower. I'm just leaving it there. I'm just <laughs> leaving that whole counterfeit <laughs> borrowing situation. And I'm going to move on. (laughs) But there was a little bit of rivalry, and I will tell you that's why. So I don't blame her either. Madam Walker took it further than Poro ever did, but there was some borrowing. Um, Alilia adopted a neighbor's child. Alilia. Now, not Lelia. Alilia. Um, Adopted a neighbor's child with the amazing name of Fairy May, although they called her May. And Sarah was now a grandmother, uh, albeit a young one. And the family established a new base in New York City. And Sarah was invited to speak at Booker T. Washington's next convention. So there's a development. And this is a quote from the speech that she gave. I am not merely satisfied in making money for myself, for I am endeavoring to provide employment for hundreds of the women of my race. I had little or no opportunity when I started out in life, having been left an orphan. I had to make my own living and my own opportunity, but I made it. That's why I want to say to every Negro woman present, don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. Get up and make them yourself. And she was called by Booker T. Washington, a striking example of the possibilities of Negro womanhood in the business world. (laughs) Finally got some recognition from him, eh? (laughs) I I was very happy to see that. It took a while and she had to overcome. So that was really good. So she began to, quote, encourage 
Mm. She incentivized her sales force to use some of their wealth to improve their own communities. And with the sales numbers, she expected and got accounts of her sales force's philanthropy, um, both big and small. So her own efforts were multiplied, magnified, and bags full of letters from women thanking Sarah for changing their lives came from all over the country. And she was so touched by this that I'm kind of thinking if there's someone who's changed your life in some way, you should probably write them. Just write them today. There's a challenge for you. Um, she traveled nearly nonstop. Central America now and the Caribbean. There's now 20,000 saleswomen under her. She's at the top of her game. And now to more of a national stage, World War I broke out. And Sarah, with other black leaders, encouraged black soldiers to join up. Their hope was that by showing their loyalty to America, that society would return the favor by granting them true equal rights. I mean, technically, they'd had the right to vote men anyway from 1870, but you know, the restrictive practices were still in place. Race relations were at an all-time low. We're going to cross another podcast subject here when we mention the St. Louis race riot of 1917. Um, Josephine Baker, former podcast subject, claimed to be in the midst of this horrific event where white citizens crossed over into Black East St. Louis and murdered and terrorized the citizens there. And the people who'd encouraged all those young men to join up for the country felt betrayed by the government's reactions to this and other just horrific incidents all over the country. The 369th Infantry Regiment, in fact, they called the Harlem Hellfighters by the Germans because they were so feared. <laughs> um, I'm going to provide you with a link to a book about them, too. That's a great um, name. Yeah. Well, the Germans gave it to them. Um, so they're one of the most famous regiments from World War One from America. And they came back to this. I mean, lukewarm, lukewarm at best from the government as a whole. It was very offensive. And lynchings had reached almost 500 that year. And as murder is prosecuted at the state level instead of the federal level, lynchings were getting ignored. I mean, states just wouldn't prosecute. Madam Walker joined an NAACP committee that organized a march called the Negro Silent Protest Parade. And in broad daylight, around 20,000 marchers, children and women as well as men, um, probably Madam Walker too, the biographer that I read couldn't pinpoint her attendance, but as she was there, part of the committee, you know, I don't think she would have missed such a thing. They marched peacefully and solemnly to only a drumbeat, solemn audience too. Everyone was quiet down Fifth Avenue as a protest, calling attention to the government's treatment of both returning soldiers and the treatment of people of color as a whole. And the next day, Sarah joined a group that was headed to the White House to present a petition to urge President Wilson at least say something from this pulpit here to anything in public to give the colored, as they said, people hope and to make lynching a federal crime. And of course, this is the president who showed the birth of a nation in the White House. That's a movie about the KKK. So he's not your most sympathetic president ever. He was suddenly unable to meet with them, despite having invited them in the first place. It might have been too much of a political hot potato. But they didn't give up. They fanned out all over Washington, D.C. and spread their message to any receptive senator, representative, uh, politico of any stripe, journalist that was there. So that it wasn't a wasted trip. And it got her name on a national platform with the likes of the most famous political activists of the day. And Sarah now encouraged her sales force because, after all, she's got a whole bunch 
of personalities behind her that can affect change on the local level. That's where the change probably should happen anyway. She encouraged her sales force not only to use their positions for philanthropy, but now for political influence. You've got to put pressure on your local leaders. And she began to give speeches at prominent events about community engagement and politics and entrepreneurship. She funded scholarships for women at the Tuskegee Institute and other colleges. Her political work won over quite a few skeptics who might have seen her as not as valuable as a contact because of her work in the beauty industry. There's that old prejudice again. It led to a friendship with the anti-lynching journalist Ida Wells Barnett. And that is legitimacy. When someone of that caliber in the journalistic world values you as a partner, I think you've made it. In and that. it must feel so good after so many challenges and so many hurdles that have been overcome to have those kind of relationships and connections finally. I know. And from nothing. You know, I hadn't written this down, but on one of her trips, she went back to Delta, Louisiana and was welcomed graciously by the daughter of the man who used to own her parents and stood in front of that house, just stood there. I'm reminded of that scene in Forrest Gump when Jenny goes back to her old house. Nobody was living in it. It was an abandoned cabin and she just stood there and kind of marveled about how far she'd come and there was her past right in front of her in an old abandoned cabin and you know the emotions must have been completely overwhelming. You show up in your seven passenger touring car, pull up outside of this cabin and it, the contrast could not be more clear. I just can't even imagine. So she'd been denied a passport by the United States government to attend a peace conference in France due to fears that I don't even know. I was going to ask if you had a reason behind that. That's well, interesting. Colored complaints. That's how they put it about race relations in the United States. The government said would derail the peace negotiations with Germany. Now, now see, I, I remember when I was younger watching some TV movie about Josephine Baker. So I remember a little bit about her story. I can't wait to listen to the episode that you did about her. But, I mean, was her travel ever restricted to your knowledge? Because I feel like she was all over the place. She was. She operated a little later. Um, and she actually worked mostly for the French. Oh, um, that's right. That's she right. She also had going for her. I don't remember how we put it in the episode, but she had a little bit of a, how shall I say, a lighter reputation. Like she was Madonna <laughs> and no one took her that seriously, but yeah. she had a bra full of information she'd written down on cocktail napkins in yep. the bathroom. <laughs> but you're not going to think that anyone like that would even care about the movements of armies. Right. She, Josephine Baker <laughs> saved tens of thousands of allies. I just remember her story being, and I mean, I read a little bit about it when I was an adult, but I just remember being in awe of her story and her experience. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to your episode because I want to learn more. I, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode. Anytime I'm interviewed for anything and people ask me who surprised you the most when you did the research, I always say Josephine Baker. I had no idea. Well, so I don't understand why Sarah was denied her passport. She's not alone. Everyone who had attempted to go to this peace conference was denied a passport. Um, I don't know. The PR situation maybe of being embarrassed is the only thing I can think of. Being embarrassed in public, i it's good for you to be embarrassed in public if you're not doing the right thing. But I guess that's the point when they can prevent it. So uh, Sarah hired the first qualified black architect in the state of New York. His name is Vertner Tandy. I don't know where one comes up with the name Vertner. <laughs> 
<laughs> the whole name is just a little bit unfortunate. <laughs> well, he designed and built for her a grand 30-room mansion in Irvington-on-Hudson, where the likes of the Rockefellers and Jay Gold lived, by the way. This is serious serious Gilded Age location with marble staircases and decorated ceilings and four fabulous cars in the garage, Villa Loaro, which is the first two letters of Lelia Walker Robinson's name. I've worked hard, she said, and now I need to rest. Her health had begun to fail. Um, nephritis in her kidneys. She had extreme hypertension. Her blood pressure is double what my blood pressure is right now. That's really bad. She often felt quite fatigued. And though she hosted several grand political and social events at that villa, she did not get to enjoy her house for long. Not much more than a year after she moved in, she fell ill and was rushed back home via a first-class carriage in a train, which still, I'm sad to say, caused epic hubbub and immediately began setting her affairs in order. She gave $5,000 to the NAACP, the largest gift the group had ever received. It was about $64,000 in today's money. She gave and gave to colleges, to schools, to foundations, to organizations and individuals. The St. Louis Orphans Home that had watched Lelia while she worked that first year got a large bequest. She didn't ever forget. She slipped into a coma one night and on May 25th, 1919, Sarah Breed Lovewalker died at her house in New York due to complications of kidney disease, and she was only 51. Her funeral was a star-studded list of prominent Black Americans. A thousand people drove in her procession, but Lelia and May did not make it in time because they were in South America. Oh, they missed the whole... Oh, it was heartbreaking. Her actual burial at Woodlawn Cemetery in New York took place days later in private after Lelia finally made it home. And after Sarah's death, Lelia became the president of the company. The company's charter actually specified that only a woman could be the president of the company. And in 1928, the new headquarters of the C.J. Walker Company went up in Indianapolis. It was a long-held desire of Sarah's after that incident at the movie theater to have a home office that not only included the factory, but included a movie theater and an auditorium because she was not going to have that treatment ever again from someone when she was going to see a movie. And she actually put in her design a movie theater, which they did build in remembrance of the old Isis theater, you know, that had treated her so badly. This headquarters is still there, and it is now the Madame Walker Theater Center, which is a cultural arts hub and event space, still there as a monument. That's a national historic monument also, as is her villa. Although the villa is now in private hands, someone lives in it, which Ooh. is kind of good, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's being kept I up. like that. Yeah, it's being kept up. It's being used. And someone's monitoring that not too many changes are being made. It's yes. basically the way that she had had it. The company did go through some hard times. The depression, which happened right after their new their new um, facility went up, made a giant dent. The loss of its heart, you know, Sarah was quite another. But it seems like the factory didn't cease production until 1981. That kind of blows me away, actually. And Sephora has just released, just released, I'm talking the timing couldn't be more perfect and I didn't plan it, the Madame C.J. Walker Beauty Culture line. And I looked at them online and the ingredients seem more exotic. I don't know what Muru Muru oil is. Exactly. Um, I've never heard of that. We're not exactly getting our hands on whatever that is. I think in 1906, but it does seem like a lot of natural ingredients and maybe it's the updated version of Sarah's vision. 
Maybe. Can I share a couple of my favorite quotes? Absolutely. The lifting others as we climb. You said that was her church, right? I hadn't heard that one. That was actually um, the association that had met at her church, the National Association. Okay. I love that. Okay. And then I, I love her quote, I got my start by giving myself a start. I just love that. She is something else. She really yeah. advocated for people to make their own way. And mm-hmm. um, and she often said that sometimes all people need is a little helping hand and they can help themselves. But without a start, it's hard. It's, you know, and she credits seeing all those women at the church with kind of jumpstarting her own desire to set on this pathway. But, you know, without a spark. Sometimes people don't get energized to start on a different path. And she really felt like giving people a little spark is what she was kind of put on earth to do. So true. So true. And and she definitely did. I mean, she still inspires people to this day. And now it's time to talk about media. So let's start with books. And I'm sorry to say that I am reading this straight out of the plaintiff request from my library to please, please bring these books back. So here they are. First, there's two children's books. Who Was the Hair Care Millionaire by Mary Kay Carson and Madam C.J. Walker, Entrepreneur by Alelia Bundles. And then The African-American Century by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Cornell West. And On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker by Alelia Bundles. Now, this author is Sarah's great-great-granddaughter, and is widely considered to be the foremost biographer. So definitely pick that one up. That's got a lot of information and photos in there and a lot of further reading. There is a work of fiction, a novel called The Black Rose by Tenerife Dew, based on the research done by Alex Haley, who wrote Roots, which is being rebooted, by the way. So it's going to be on Monday, May 30th. Set the DVR. That's the premiere of that miniseries. As promised, here's a book on the Harlem Hellfighters, a.k.a. the 369th Infantry Regiment. It's called The Harlem Hellfighters by Max Brooks. And for a little depth on the politics of black hair, there's Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America by Ayanna Bird and Lori Tharps. As to videos, the Biography Channel does have a mini-bio on her, and we'd be remiss if we didn't recommend Chris Rock's documentary, Good Hair. His little daughter once came to him and said, Daddy, why don't I have good hair? And this is his journey to find out exactly what that is. Parts are not safe for children, by the way, I'd say. And there's a video of a panel that was held two years ago, almost to the day, at Selfridges in London called Intelligence Squared Untangling the Politics of Black Hair that you might find interesting. And then, of course, because I always have to come up with the most crazy cockamamie links for you, Um, For the nerds among you, I have a link to the uses and creation of precipitated sulfur, the main ingredient in several of her formulas. And then I have a news article on the legality of hair braiding in Nebraska in 2016. So it is still political, even now. Her house is on the Louisiana Black Heritage Trail and the Walker Theater... Uh, still existing, still a cultural center in Indianapolis, is at walkertheater.org. They've got lots of special events, so check that out. The official home of all things Madam C.J. Walker, as you might guess, madamcjwalker.com. But get this, Alelia Bundles, the author at aleliabundles.com, has um, any number of rabbit holes you can go down, including something we didn't have enough time to cover. Her daughter, Lelia, actually became 
quite famous in her own right. She was friends with Langston Hughes and the like, and uh, is quite an interesting person. So if nothing else, you might check out aleliabundles.com to learn a little bit more about Lelia. And at madamnoir.com, there are instructions on how to use a hot comb, or even what a hot comb is, if you've never seen one. Last, but certainly not least, the Smithsonian has a new African-American history museum going in. Um, They are loading the items in right now. We're not sure when it's going to open, but as soon as it does, we'll update you. We'll send out a blast. This is very important history that has hardly ever been touched on, and to have a whole museum dedicated to it in our nation's capital is quite a relief, and it's about time. So we will let you know when that opens. And that is all I have for media. Check out the Pinterest board for more links and photos, Um, a picture of her stamp that she was on a United States postage stamp, all kinds of things like that. So don't forget to check out the Pinterest board because I can put a lot more links there than we can put on the website. So thank you for appearing on the show. Where can people find you in this great wide world of media empires? (laughs) Right. The easiest thing to do is to find me at aleawilliams.com. And my name is spelled A-L-A-I-A. And Williams, the way you would assume. And everything's there. The links to my shows, my actual work work, all that good stuff. And in terms of social media, I am Alea Williams on every platform. So that makes it pretty easy, too. Thank you so much for appearing. I'm so glad that you were able to come. So in closing, let me leave you with a quote from one of her obituaries. Her largest legacy is the inspiring example she's left to ambitious souls to undertake the achievement of large affairs. The career of this self-made woman should be an inspiration and an incentive to all. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Follow us in all the usual social media places at The History Chicks, with a special shout out to our Pinterest boards, which are really getting out of control. I must like doing it, so I hope you like them too. Thank you.